What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. September 11, 2001 goes down as one of the worst days in modern American history. Our nation, who seemed nearly exempt from the acts of terrorism, learned firsthand of its horrific and horrible schemes. If you were alive that day, you remember exactly where you were and exactly what you were doing. The attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and the plane crash in Pennsylvania were a devastating blow with the engraved reality that has been sketched in our minds that no human being is promised complete safety in this lifetime. The way a terrorist acts, by the way, is not out in the forefront of battle. They slip into a nation discreetly, learn the culture completely, master the language thoroughly, and integrate themselves into life daily. Then, when nobody is watching, and when everybody is least expecting it, they reveal themselves and unleash, unravel, and unfold their plot for all to see. You see, just as the hijackers of the planes in 2011 left the people of America in turmoil, pain, and sorrow, Jude is writing in his letter about a similar threat in the ancient world, what I call spiritual terrorism. Please don't misunderstand me today. I believe that the attacks on 9-11 were absolutely horrific. But they do not compare to the threat of false teachers infiltrating the church in Jude's day and infiltrating our church as a whole in modern society. Today, I want to label the title of my sermon with the two words on the screen, spiritual terrorism. And in fact, here's a thought I, I want to share with you. Spiritual terrorism is one of the greatest acts of the church today. Think about that. Out of all the attacks we see that are coming at our, our churches, I believe that spiritual terrorism is one of the greatest acts in, the, in, in our world today. And you're like, well, well, what is exactly spiritual terrorism? What does that mean, Brian, you might ask? Well, that is the question I want to seek to answer very briefly with this thought. In fact... This thought is a little lengthy that I'm about to share with you, but it summarizes, I believe, the content of these verses that we're about to study and the content of my sermon today. Spiritual terrorism, or a spiritual terrorist, is a false teacher who uses imagination, deception, and delusion to lead people astray from the truth of God's word. Did you hear me carefully? A spiritual terrorist is a false teacher who uses imagination, deception, and delusion to lead people astray from the truth of God's word. Just like a regular terrorist from a group 
out of another nation or perhaps even within our nation today will mask themselves in disguise and then openly reveal themselves when their plot is being unleashed, we see that this type of attack was, was at bay in the life of the ancient church in Jude's day. And today I want to share with you three thoughts, kind of pulling out of this key thought today. But the first one is found in verses 8 through 10. And as we read these few verses, verse 8, 9, and 10, we see there's a lot going on in these verses. But the first of three thoughts I want to share with you is this. A spiritual terrorist uses imagination to lead people astray. A spiritual terrorist uses imagination to lead people astray. If you will, a spiritual terrorist is a false teacher or an apostate. Somebody who has been on the very brink of of hearing the truth of God's word, and then they reject it and go teach something otherwise. And the Bible says here, remember, Jude is writing by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and this is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, writing sometime between 67 and 70 AD, just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's writing to these believers with great urgency of contending for the faith because of these apostate false teachers or spiritual terrorists have crept in. And in verses 5, 6, and 7, he goes back into the old covenant to give us three biblical illustrations of the judgment upon these false teachers. And then in verse number 8, he begins to say, likewise, kind of, In similar fashion as verse 5 with the illustration of the children of Israel and Egypt. Then the illustration of these angelic beings. Then the illustration of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, likewise, these filthy dreamers. So the question is simply this. Who are these filthy dreamers? Are the filthy dreamers the people of Sodom that he's writing about in verse 7? Are these filthy dreamers the angelic beings who fell from glory as he wrote about in verse 6? Or are these filthy dreamers the Israelites of old who rejected and rebelled against God right before going into the promised land of Kadesh Barnea? Well, I want to draw your attention to verse 4. Because I believe verse 4 is connected to verse 8 and reveals to us who exactly these filthy dreamers that Jude is writing about. Remember, he says in verse 4, in verse 3, he says, contend for the faith that was once delivered among the saints. And then in verse number 4, he says, there's uncertain men, or there's, excuse me, certain men crept in unawares. In other words, they've slipped in to the assemblies privately. Ungodly men, he says in verse 4, who have turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness, or in other words, the practice of indulging in the flesh and denying the only Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the filthy dreamers are these false teachers. They are the apostates that Jude is writing about, or that in our context that I'm sharing with you about, the spiritual terrorists that are invading the church of the ancient world and that unfortunately have invaded the church of the modern age. And the first way that they lead people astray is by their imagination. It's interesting in the New Testament, this word dreamers is not exclusively used by the writer of Jude, but it's used by the writer of Luke. Remember in 
the book of Acts. We read about Jesus just ascended in chapter 1, and there the disciples are left in the upper room. There's 120 people, more than just the original 11. And uh, there's a lot of people there. And uh, then in chapter 2, we see a transition where Peter stands up and he delivers a sermon. And in that sermon, he's referencing back to the prophet Joel. And he says, in the last days, he goes in through all these different things about prophesying. And he says that, that these people will dream dreams. Gives the idea they're going to see visions and dream dreams. In other words, what I believe is going on, just a little snapshot of, of, of Joel's prophecy, is he's predicting, I believe, that this was a partial fulfillment, perhaps, that it's taking place here, and then predicting what it's going to be like in the future, in the tribulation period. But anyways, he says that these people will dream dreams. And Jude, of course, is using the same word that Luke used. This gives the idea that their source was extra biblical revelation. That is, their sources was things outside of the context of Scripture. That is, they were receiving visions, if you will. They were receiving dreams. In other words, it was things in their own imaginary mind of they were dreaming up as support for their false teachings about Christ and about how they could live any way they wanted. And that brings us to verse 8. It says, likewise also these dreamers. Notice it says, defile the flesh. Would you say those three words with me? Defile the flesh. Say it again. Defile the flesh. How are they using their imagination to lead people astray, you might ask? Well, as we read that phrase, defile the flesh, I think it's obvious. They use their imagination to practice immorality. Remember, Jude is, is writing against these People who could perhaps be zealots trying to lead a revolt against Rome and trying to get people on their side so they can overthrow Rome. But then he's writing against perhaps these people who are, who are denying the doctrine of Jesus as exclusively being the Son of God, God incarnate, and saying that, hey, we can live however we want to live because God is gracious. It doesn't matter what Scripture necessarily says. God is gracious. He's forgiving so we can live however we want. And here, defile the flesh gives us a similar fashion that just as these people that were living in Sodom were defiling the flesh, just as these people uh, that, or these beings who fell from heaven were defiling the flesh, we see here that the, the Bible says that these false teachers are practicing immorality. Now, sure, there's an idea that this is literal, physical immorality, but there's also this idea of spiritual immorality, how they are pushing people away from believing the words of the living God. Pushing them away to say, hey, you don't have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate. Hey, you don't have to believe that you have to live a moral lifestyle. They were using their imagination. Things that were not rooted and anchored and grounded in Scripture. They were dreamers. In fact, one commentator said that the idea of dreamers is they were just in their own sense of reality. A reality that was totally contrary to the word. God. And I'm here to tell you something today. As I read this phrase, as I think about the idea of these filthy dreamers in Jude's day, I am reminded of the filthy dreamers of our day who are just in their own sense of reality. They're way out in the ozone layer in outer space with what they're teaching and saying. Because a lot of this stuff going around in our world today is totally foreign to the book you're holding in your hand. 
as we read forward. The Bible says that, that they not only defile the flesh, but it says they despise dominion. Would you say those two, words, those two words with me? Despise dominion. Say it again. Despise dominion. Obviously, this is a recurring theme in Jude's letter so far about the idea of practicing immorality. But, but notice another thought here. They use their imagination. They're way out there in outer space to reject authority. They use their imagination to reject authority. Here it says they despise dominion. I'm inclined to believe that this most likely is a reference to the sovereign God of the universe. Surely I know that, that the dignities in, in verse number 8 is, is in correlation with verse number 9, Michael and angelic beings. But, but I believe that right here, that, that they were de despising more than just angelic beings here. Their authority. We know that God has created the angelic host to have some sense of hierarchy and authority. And they are created to do God's word and to carry out his will. But here, I believe that they're defiling their flesh and despising God's authoritative dominion and his throne. They're rejecting God's authority. May I share this with you? Whenever you lead somebody astray from believing the word of God into something else, you're not only encouraging them to practice something that is spiritual adultery, but you're also encouraging them to practice idolatry, worshiping a false god. Listen, I know that we've hit a lot of subjects here that are kind of hard to hit in the book of Jude in our culture, but it really doesn't matter what my opinion is. It really doesn't matter what your opinion is. The, the, the fact of the matter is, what does God's word say? And then what does God's word mean when it says what it says? And so here, we live in a generation a lot like Jude's day. They were rebelling against the authority of Caesar they were rebelling against the authority of Rome. And here today, my friends, we live in a culture that rebels far more than just the seed of Rome, but the seed of God. And then that leads us to the last part of verse 8, down to verse 10. How do they use their imagination? I mean, if God is the highest level of authority, we should never reject him. If God is our highest level of morality, we should never live in a way that contradicts his word for morality. But then, think about this. It says, speak evil of dignities. And then, begins to write about Michael the archangel, and then how, in verse 10, they are speaking evil of those things they don't understand. So, another thought here is they're using their imagination. Remember, they're way out in outer space here because it's not anchored and rooted in Scripture. They're dreaming up these ideas. Perhaps they were inspired by Satan to live irreverently. They use imagination to not just reject authority and practice immorality, but to live irreverently. And my, how our culture fails to live with reverence. This phrase, speak evil of dignities, is the old English way of saying the angelic beings or angelic hosts. 
This word speak evil comes from a Greek word that literally we get our word blaspheme from. So in other words, they were reviling these words of these angelic beings that were not true. And verse number nine is of hot debate among scholars because maybe you've read the Old Testament before, maybe you haven't. But if you have read the Old Testament before, you know that the Bible does speak about the body of Moses being buried, but it speaks about how nobody knows where his body was buried. So in verse number nine, we're like, it says, yet Michael the archangel. And by the way, this is the only time in scripture where the name Michael and the word archangel are used together. We know Michael is used back in the book of Daniel. He's summoned and he's like the protector of Israel. We know in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible says that the trumpet will sound, the archangel will sound it, but it doesn't say Michael specifically, although we believe Michael's the one that's going to blow that trumpet. And then we read in Revelation chapter 12 about how Michael is there combating against the enemy, Satan. But here it says, yet Michael the archangel, in reference to speaking evil of these deities, when contending... This gives the, this is kind of like a lawyer's term. They're in the courtroom and they are going at it at, at law. They're at great debate and it's heated about this issue. And the Bible says the devil disputed, argued, debated about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said the Lord rebuke you. So the question is simply this. If this event is not found in the Old Testament, where is Jude getting this event? Because, listen, I've read the Old Testament, I don't know how many times I've read it, I, I can't really remember, but, but I've read it enough times to realize that, that verse number nine is not there. Three church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Didymus, and Origen, were alive in a day where a document called the Assumption of Moses was accessible. And they say, in the 100s, 200, and 300 AD, that Jude was referencing this document called the Assumption of Moses. It is an extra-biblical reference. This is not uncommon in the New Testament. I mean, Paul references Jamerson, you know, the two magicians in the days of Egypt who are not mentioned in the Old Testament. Paul cites all these other things, and so just because Jude is citing here does not mean that we shouldn't include this book in the canon. In fact, I think it's interesting, in Jude's day, in the first century AD, we know that these Jewish believers would have, would have been obviously connected with the Old Testament, but also the apocryphal writings, the writings within the intertestamental period between Malachi and between the book of Matthew. And so Jude is very possibly using this as an illustration to tell them that they are familiar with, hey, Michael, who's the archangel, you know the story of Jewish tradition, and this is a tradition story in Jewish literature, verse number nine. And he says, you know this story about how Michael, the highest holy angel that God has created, didn't even revile and blaspheme Satan. So the Jewish story is this is that Michael and, and Satan were at this place and God gave Michael the authority to take Moses' body and to bury it in a place where nobody knew about. But then Satan comes along and since he's considered the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this age, the prince of this world, he comes to Michael and he says, hey, hey, you're, you cannot, you don't have the authority to take the body of Moses because Moses was a murderer. He doesn't deserve a, a, a respectful burial, so he's mine. And the story goes 
that Michael looks to him and says, may the Lord rebuke you. Now, maybe all the details of that Jewish legend and tradition is true. But what we do know is Jude is referencing that story. And the point is this. Is that there are things in this life that God is the one responsible for judging these angelic hosts. Not you, not me. And that we know that scripture clearly teaches that, that, that God is just. As we looked at last week in verses 5, 6, and 7. And God is going to deliver his judgment to this world. But we are not the ones that are going to bring the judgment of God to this age. God is. Not you, not me. No matter how holy you might think you are. No matter how special. No matter how righteous you might think you are. God is the one who rebukes. And that's final. The Bible says in correlation to these false teachers, they are speaking evil of the things that they don't even understand. The word for knowledge here is the intellectual knowledge. They don't even understand the things that they're saying. In other words, it it would be like this. It would be like me, even though I've never been to your house, but I walk up to say, yeah, old so-and-so, man, their house is just a pigsty. I mean, you walk in and there's, there's like 50 dogs in the house and 50 cats and cat hair, dog hair, dog you know what, everywhere. <laughs> and they don't even, they haven't mowed their grass in three years. I'd be speaking about things that I don't know to be factually true. And Jude was saying these false teachers are speaking about things that they don't even know to be factually true about these dignities, these angelic beings. And it says that, and what they do know naturally, he calls them brute beasts. In other words, like living animals. As I read that, I was reminded of Nebuchadnezzar, how when he rejected God and God's authority, he was summoned to live like an animal. But then he says, in those things that they do not fully understand, even though they're talking as if they do, they actually have corrupted their own selves. So let's be careful of the accusations we make because sometimes those accusations are just somewhere in our own mind in outer space that have no level ground of truth. Spiritual terrorism is one of the greatest attacks in the church today. And the first way a terrorist is going to attack in the church is by using their imagination as a source for truth. But it's not. But secondly, found in verse 11. Not only are these false teachers using imagination, but secondly, they're using deception. A spiritual terrorist uses deception to lead people astray. It begins in their mind. They begin to think about these things and concoct all these ideas that that are not based upon the word of God. And then what they do is they use those ideas that are way out there in left field to deceive subtly others to get on board with their belief. And in verse 11... Jude, as he does, he likes to do things in threes. In verse 5, 6, and 7, he gives these three biblical illustrations. And in verse 11, he gives us three more biblical illustrations that reveal to us a level of deception that was used in the Old Testament context. He says, woe to them 
This is an old English way of saying judgment has already come upon them unless they repent. And listen, it doesn't matter if you happen to be a false teacher. It doesn't matter if you are, are a, an apostate, I guess. In fact, until you give up your last breath, there is an opportunity for you to repent and to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And here, it says that these false teachers have gone the way of Cain. You know Cain's story? In the book of Genesis, Cain was fueled by jealousy and envy and hatred, and he killed and murdered his brother, Abel. First John writes about this scene. Hebrews chapter 11 writes about this scene. And here Jude writes about this scene, how they have gone in the way of Cain. And the idea is simply this. They use deception to promote unrighteousness. They use deception to promote unrighteousness. Just like Cain. Fueled by his jealousy. Fueled by his envy. And hatred. Took another life. These false teachers are fueled with their envy. They are fueled with their jealousy. They're fueled by their hatred and they are seeking to put to death anybody who believes the truth of God's word. That is the way of Cain. And if you call yourself a Christian, if I call myself a Christian, those attributes should not be a part of my life. I think it's obvious that, that we would say that, hey, a Christian should not murder. And the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. But as a Christian, the way to get to the place where you are a murderer is when you allow jealousy to boil inside you. And that jealousy will turn to envy. And that envy will turn to hatred. Then you will want to put to death those things or that person. The second illustration he uses in this verse is the heir of Balaam. This takes us back to the book of Numbers. And in fact, these next two stories, if you're not super versed in the Old Testament, you, you may not know what, what these illustrations that Jude is referring to here. And he says that, that, that just as they are running after the way of Cain, they are running greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. And, and, and in Numbers chapters 22 to 25, we see the scene in which Balaam arises. And the interesting thing is, is Balaam was not a false prophet. He was a true prophet, but he began to backslide. And his story reminds us of covetousness. Cain's is about unrighteousness, but, but Balaam is about covetousness, about how these false teachers use deception to promote covetousness. And so here, the, the king of Moab, Barak, he, he, uh, I think I'm pronouncing his name right and getting it all right, but anyways, he calls him to all these different mountains to pronounce, he wanted him to pronounce a curse upon Israel, and in fact, he pronounced a blessing. And he was going to be rewarded, but then the king says, not nah, you're not going to be rewarded now. And so sends him away, and, and Balaam is furious. 
And so he figures out how he can still get that reward. And he coerces Israel into practicing immorality, intermingling with these nations that they were commanded not to intermingle with, and then, and then practicing idolatry. And then he's riding his donkey. Maybe you know this part of the story because Second Peter talks about it. And as he's riding his donkey, the donkey apparently sees an angel, but, 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 but he didn't. And his donkey, after he hits him a few times, his donkey begins to speak. It's amazing. Sometimes that we're in a crazy place, God will do crazy things to get our attention. And he did that with Balaam. And it reminds us that when we are full of greed and, and lust and covetousness, we will do anything to get what we want. And here, let us not use the pulpit. Let us not use the church to stuff our own personal pockets full of greed, full of lust, and full of covetousness. Because this deception lies behind the false teachers and they're seeking to get people to live unrighteously and to live in a way that, that, that is full of lust. But then the other one here is perishing in the gainsaying of Korah. Or Korah. This takes us, it's interesting, the chronology here is, is a little off with Jude's mindset, but that's not really the point here. His point thirdly here in this section is not just unrighteousness and covetousness, but, but they use deception to promote rebelliousness. And here we see that, that in, in Numbers chapter 16, Korah, who is related to Moses and Aaron, but not down the exact family line where God said that the Levites will be from. And Korah gathers 250 other people on his case and on his cause to rebel against the authority figures God placed. And you might remember the story. God judged them. Most likely an earthquake took place. In fact, as I read the story, I imagine the earth had a big old mouth and face and just ate them like ants. But the reality is, is most likely it was an earthquake that, that jarred the ground in such a way that, that it opened up and then the, these individuals were swallowed up by the earth. They rebelled against God's order in the nation of Israel. <laughs> it's interesting that we see a generation of people who are living in a way that's very like Cain, living with hatred and, and, and greed and like Balaam, and, and living with rebellion like the people of Korah. And today, my friends, there's this, there's this idea within the modern church where, where these false teachers are stepping in, trying to lead people astray, to practice things that are contrary to the word of God, to, to live in a way that, hey, you can lust after whatever you want, desire anything, and then you can rebel against the authority of the actual local church. The highest authorities in the church. God established his elders. And for us to rebel against the elders in the church would be literally to rebel against the authorities God has placed in the church. Now, that does not mean that, that elders like myself 
can't stumble and fall. And when I am in, in the wrong, that is when I am to be confronted. But when somebody like myself is not in the wrong and it has biblical foundations behind what is being promoted and said, we are not to rebel against that authority. A spiritual terrorist will creep inside a church to use deception to lead people astray. A spiritual terrorist will use imagination to lead people astray inside the church. But thirdly today, I want to share with you from verses 12 and 13. But keep in mind, spiritual terrorism is one of the greatest attacks on the church today. Thirdly, and finally, Jude transitions to natural illustrations. He's been using these biblical illustrations. He's been using verse 5, 6, 7, and verse number 11. But now in verses 12 and 13, he looks to the natural world and uses the natural world to condemn the false teachers. And so thirdly, a spiritual terrorist uses delusion to lead people astray. You see, it begins in your mind. You begin to, to be way out over here in outer space, and you have literally no foundation for what you're saying, no support. Then, in order to try to gather support, you deceive. But then you enter into a state of delusion where you are just totally, you're gone. And then you try to get others to be just as deluded as yourself. And so Jude looks in the first part of verse 12, and notice, notice here, it says these are the spots. I want to zoom in and focus on the word spots. Would you say that with me? Spots. Say it again. Spots. He says, these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fears. I thought about this phrase. Check this out. They use delusion because they are egotistical. They're all about themselves. In fact, it's very obvious that, that Jude might have in his mind the prophet Ezekiel when he's condemning those false preachers and pastors and prophets. This word spots, it comes from an original word that gives the idea that it is a hidden reef in the shore that cannot be seen, that when a ship goes across it, it leaves a great blemish and spot on the boat. And so the idea is simply this, is that these false teachers are going to come in privately. And then because they're full of pride and, e and they're very egotistical, they are going to be all about themselves. Notice it also says the Feast of Charity. This is the love feast in the old ancient church. You see, in the old church, in the ancient church, in the primitive church, if you will, everything was a lot different and, and it was not as quite sophisticated and what I would say professional like today. In fact, they met in the home. And when they met in the home, generally speaking, it was somebody's house who was well off that could perhaps seat and host 150 or perhaps even 200 people. Whether that was outside or in a large gathering space or in a room, we don't really know. Our mind can only speculate. But they would gather together inside a home or on a property of somebody that owned territory in their community. And there they would have somebody, because they were Jewish, there was some sense of orderly fashion in the worship service, they would still have somebody give a sermon or a homily and then they would break bread together. And those who were less fortunate would be blessed by those who were fortunate and who could afford the food, and they would eat around the table. And then after they would eat around the table, they would have the Lord's Supper. 
they would have the bread, they would have the wine, and they would honor the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. But here, this Bible says they crept in, these false teachers crept in, acting as if they were part of all these things, but in reality they were not, and they were leading people astray. They were egotistical. Then notice, it goes on to speak about clouds. It says, clouds, they are without water. Would you say the word clouds with me? Clouds, say it again, clouds. It says, clouds, they are without water, carried about of winds. Check this out. They are delusional because they promise, their promises are revocable. They use delusion because their promises are revocable. In other words, in, in, in the area which Jude lived, he lived in the Middle East. And in the Middle East, they don't get a lot of rain. And so when the cloud comes, they're hoping the crowd is going to drop drops of rain. But when the cloud covers the sky and it moves on without any drops of rain, the cloud promised big but delivered small. And that's what these false teachers do. They give promises that are revocable. Promises that are void. Promises that are empty and not true. But then he goes on to say, he speaks about the spots. He speaks about the clouds. And then he speaks about the trees. Would you say trees with me? Trees. Say it again. Trees. He says, trees whose fruit withers without fruit twice did plucked up by the roots. Think about this. They use delusion because they are not reproducible. That's the point here. A tree during the autumn season, at least here in our culture, is going to produce many, many apples or many, many pears. And if it's a tree, it might be alive in a sense that it's still there. But if it doesn't produce anything, then it's considered dead. Then you're going to take it out of the ground and it's considered twice dead. So the idea is simply this, is that these trees, they look like a tree, but they do not bear any fruit. Therefore, they are a false prophet, a false teacher, an apostate, a spiritual terrorist. And it is very possible that Jude might be referring to, at least I was reminded of this as I was reading in here, that that here he might also have in his mind that these people are going to be judged by God. And unless they are born twice, they will die twice in the afterlife. They will experience the second death. But then in verse 13, he goes on from the spots and the clouds and the trees. And in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 13, he emphasizes waves and stars. He says, raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Maybe you've been to the beach before. I'm sure this summer you might have went to a beach in North Carolina or South Carolina. And you go there and you see the waves come up on the shore and you see the foam that the waves bring. Here, the Bible likens these false teachers of these raging waves because they are just unpredictable. So they use delusion because they are unpredictable. You can't predict what they're going to do. You can't predict what they're going to say because their thoughts are way out in, in outer space and they're trying to deceive and they're deluded. And so they're like these raging waves. And because they're unpredictable, they bring upon themselves shame. And then the final illustration is wandering stars. When I first read this, I thought to myself, is he thinking about Mars here? Is he thinking about the sun? 
What is he thinking about here in his mind? Because it almost gives the idea that, that it says, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackest of darkness forever. It almost gives the idea that, that he's referencing these stars as not being dependable. And that's the fifth thought here is they use delusion because they are undependable. But the idea is not, he's not talking about a, 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 a sun that is fixed in place. Not speaking about an earth or a planet that is fixed in place in the orbit. But speaking about a shooting star or a comet or a meteor. That it goes along the scene and is only seen for a little bit and then it vanishes away off into the darkness of space. Remember in the ancient world, they weren't like us. They didn't have all these nice high-tech phones. And they can say, hey Siri, give me directions to Clearwood Baptist Church. And Siri will give you directions. Or if you have Google or whoever you might have. Their source of directions was looking up at night and seeing the stars. And those stars that were out there that could be seen every single night were dependable. They were reliable. They were full of trust. But this comet or this shooting star or this meteorite or meteor could not be trusted because it was undependable. They're deluded. They're deceived. And they're imagining things that are not true. Have you ever heard of the legend of the Trojan horse? It was first mentioned in the Odyssey and describes the epic battle when the Greeks overtook the city of Troy. After a 10-year warfare to conquer the city, the Greeks finally drew up a scheme. I mean, it was risky, but it just might work if it was carefully done to the T. Supposedly, they provided a gift, a large horse that was built by wood as a gift to the inhabitants of Troy. And it was actually a gift to the goddess Athena, which was a means to atone their previous desecration of the goddess's temple. And as they gave that gift, it was a peace offering to let the Grecian army and fleet right off into the sea safely. The people of Troy embraced the gift and watched them sail off into the seas and, and brought the gift inside the gates and closed the gates. And then at nighttime, they all went to bed. But guess who got out of the Trojan horse? Some of the military men from Greece. And they unlocked the gates and the fleet that supposedly left came back and invaded the city to its demise. I say that to say this. Beware of the Trojan horses in the church. Beware of the spiritual terrorists who are invading our churches today. They're false teachers. They're false prophets and they're apostates. And God's word here in this book is summoning them to repentance. And today, you might be a pseudo-believer. You might have never experienced the life-changing power of the gospel. And today, my friends, no matter where you stand, if you're a raging apostate, if you're a raging false prophet, or you're just a normal, average unbeliever, there is an opportunity for you to come to faith in Christ. And so we invite you, if you don't know Jesus, to come to faith in him before it's eternally too late.
Spiritual terrorism is one of the greatest attacks on the church today. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.